Welcome to Managing Marketing. Today I'm talking with Will Scully-Powers, who's the chairman of Datarati and the CEO of Pascal, which is a data analytics and uh, insights platform for business and marketing. Welcome, Will. Thanks, Darren. Great to be here. Um, Will, I love uh, data, even though I've, well, I've got a science background and, uh, and doing a lot of research for the first six years of my uh, of career before I got into advertising. It's interesting how data has completely transformed marketing because what it's actually done is all those sort of what used to be the boring direct marketers are now actually often leading the process, aren't they? Oh, absolutely. And it's, look, I've I've been in this space for probably the last 15 years, specifically around data and automation and CRM. And it's each year it gets more exciting around the uh, new technologies that are that are coming to market, but more importantly, what types of new customer experiences they can create. Mm. Um, you know, and, and I think that's what's the most exciting you know opportunity for for every marketer in this space is is how to actually use this data to deliver you know really cool new types of customer experiences. Because you know, a lot of people, when you say data, they immediately think of big data, and I think that's such a misnomer. Because uh, I read recently, IBM has said around uh, forty or something percent of big data is actually unused. Um, can you sort of give people a sense of you know data, customer data versus big data? Sure, sure, sure. So look, uh, my view is uh, you know most customers have all of the data they actually need to deliver you know, a monumental shift in improvement uh, from the existing customer experience that they have today to what they could create tomorrow using the information that they already have. The, 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 the challenge that they have is that they, they don't actually have the strategy mm. around how they're gonna, or what they're gonna, uh, what type of customer experiences that they're going to create from the data that they already have. Um, so we call, we call this customer data that sits in front of them small data. Yeah. Right. They can't work out uh, a strategy for their small data, let alone talking about big data. Yeah. Um, so look, I, th- uh, you know, from the work that we are involved in, um, you know, big data. It, you know, most organizations, not just here in Australia, but around the world, are um, nowhere near ready for for it because they they actually don't have a methodology around you know how to actually use it mm. um, to ultimately deliver a better customer experience. Because at the end of the day, that's what it's all about. How do you use this information, whether it's first, second, or third party data to deliver a better customer experience? Because um, I, um, I wrote a, an article about uh, a coffee shop owner in the building that the first office I bought for Trinity P3 in South Melbourne, and there was a coffee shop downstairs run by this guy, Lorenzo. Mm-hmm. And the first day I walked in there, he says, I haven't seen you before, ask my name. Uh, or took my order. The next time I went in, he said, oh, another strong latte? I said, yeah, absolutely. On my birthday, he gave me a cake. Like, I don't even remember telling him when my birthday was. Now, that guy was doing this for maybe two, 300 customers and had this big, long queue of people lining up <laughs> when they had four or five other cafes that they could go to in the area. He sold that business for a fortune, and within a month, 
it had gone back to nothing. And the woman who bought it said, I think he lied about his customers. And I said, no, he actually had customer data in his head. Mm. He memorised at least two to 300 people, their names, their birthdays and what they drank for their coffee. Mm. And that made them feel important. Now, to me, all that is is taking that and the ability to scale it with technology and make your customers feel important and feel wanted mm-hmm. uh, is part of what the challenge is, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I can share a similar story. We, we did some work with a, a group called Vita Group. They're owned by sort oh, yeah. of Telstra and yeah. not all the Telstra enterprise shops. And, uh, you know, for them, they were going through a, a massive digital transformation with, you know, CRM data and marketing automation and the like. And, um, you know, what they found was their customers were, you know, giving them feedback around a poor experience in these stores. Mm. And you sort of looked at, well, what was actually going on? And you look in, not only into the data, but actually getting out and going to speak to some customers. Uh, novel concept, I know. Um, <laughs> but what they, what they ended up doing was, you know, when there was a, a lineup in the store of more than three customers, they would actually hand the, the, the customer a, uh, a voucher to the coffee shop across the road, right? And said, look, go, 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 go grab a coffee on us and uh, we'll SMS you uh, when, okay. when you're ready. Uh, and their net promoter score, you know, uh, went from from what was a you know a, a very negative one yeah, to minus, a, yeah. <laughs> yeah, to a very very positive one in in uh, just a, a few days time, right? So at the end of the day, there was um, using uh, explicit face to face data uh, to take insight from that and then take action completely transformed the customer experience, yep. something as simple as that, right? So it didn't need technology. It didn't need uh, any sort of uh, data centralization and complex automation strategy. It was just listening to customers, looking for an opportunity around how to improve it and deliver better experience. Well, the, the thing is always defining what the problem is clearly so mm-hmm. that you can solve it. So many people are trying to solve the problems that don't exist. But a minute ago, Will, you mentioned first, second and third party data. And I, I know a lot of uh, marketers that I talk to get very confused about this. Um, so, yeah, I get first party data is your customer data, the mm-hmm. stuff that you've collected or you know about your existing customers. Explain to me second and third party data. Cool. So uh, it, it, I guess I'll start with most people get confused with it because there's never really a clear explanation between one, two, and three. So right. I'll, 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 I'll do my do, best to give you yeah, uh, I'll do all three because yeah. maybe my first party data is not clear. I'd make yeah. things as simple as possible. That's it. No, you did a good job, right? So first party data is data you know explicitly about your customers, yeah. right? So t- typically this is data that sits within your customer relationship management system. Uh, so their name, their phone number, their email address, etc. So that's first party data. Second party data is data that sits potentially with a partner. Mm-hmm. So it could be a situation where um, you take your customer data and you've got uh, you know a partner in the industry that also has some profiling data uh, and you marry the two up. Right. So that, that's first party and, and second party data. So there are companies in, in this space, particularly around marketing like Experian and Axiom mm-hmm. that have 
sets of second party data mm-hmm. that allow marketers to connect their first party data with second party data to learn more about your customers, yeah. right? Get a better view on what they look like. A fuller, often richer view Correct. than they've collected. Yeah, where they, it could be now that, you know, first party data, you know their address, second party data could be, um, you know, the the, uh, the geodemographics of that particular area or the firmographics or the psychographics, yeah. et cetera. Uh, and then third-party data is, is is data that sits in um, what they call traditionally data management platforms. So these often are what um, in, uh, are um, considered uh, in the industry known as uh, uh, cookie pools. So okay. all it all it essentially is is saying, okay, we have a database of you know IP addresses and and, and cookies that sit in our database out here. Mm-hmm. Um, we're going to try to probable uh, probabilistic match these cookies and these device IDs with your first and second party data to make a probabilistic estimation of Will is Will. So Will in your CRM database that has first name, last name, you know, address. And he's a customer, so I know who he is. He's a customer. along with some Experian data around, you know, my um, geodemographics, for example, plus now connecting it with the fact that, oh, Will also, uh, you know, surfs news.com and, you know, surfsup.com and all of these other different types of websites. All of that information is is housed in what they call these data management platforms. So does that mean as a, a marketer, the data that you know the Facebooks and the Googles of the world are offering—that's third-party data—and I'm trying to match that. Is that that's the way that works, or is that second-party data? Yes. Yeah, so it's uh, it, it, you take a, a Google and a Facebook. They they uh, you know they, because they have um, so much data. Um, some of it can be considered second-party data, mm-hmm. and some of it can also be considered okay. third-party data. So um, you know what we've seen it hap- or happen in the space is that the large CRM vendors, the Oracles, the Salesforce, and the Microsofts of the world are buying these third-party data management platforms. Why? Because they give a deeper, richer view mm-hmm. of existing customer data. So for example, um, uh, uh, Salesforce uh, uh, last year or the year before, I think it was, uh, bought a company called Crux. And Crux is a third-party data management platform. Mm-hmm. Um, and the goal for uh, Salesforce customers is to say, oh, now that you have all of your data sitting in the CRM, let's connect it to our third, uh, third-party data management platform so that you can go and find other customers that look similar to your most profitable customers. Yeah. Um, and so there's obviously a you know a, a real value chain there, which is why you're starting to see a lot of these larger CRM vendors acquire third-party data providers. Right. Okay. So well, I think that's a, a terrific explanation. So now I'll be able to direct people to this podcast when <laughs> that, whenever someone asks me. But uh, almost every company, uh, the CEO will stand up and go, "We want to be more customer-centric, or we're going to be more customer-centric." It's pretty essential to be customer centric to actually understand or know your customers, isn't it? Yeah, you know, I think it's it's quite funny, <laughs> right? You know, it, it's funny that you know you, you, anything you read today, it's um, you know how organizations are transforming to become customer first, which makes you sort of think, what were they? What before? were they before? <laughs> right? What were they before? Uh, and the reality is, they were all product first. Yeah. Right. 
And manufacturing you know, out. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. You know, it's like we build products and we sell products. What was it? From the day Henry Ford said you can have any color as long as it's black, every manufacturer has had the same view. That's right. That's right. <laughs> so look, you know, it's um, uh, you know, it's interesting. But what we've actually seen a transition from, from is not only companies that are saying, okay, well, we need to become customer first and customer centric and customer obsessed. Um, but actually going one step further, um, which is, well, how do you create that? Well, creating that is actually needs to happen internally, right? So you mm. first and foremost really need to be employee first. And the, the best use case and example that, that um, you know, that I've seen globally is Zappos, yeah. right? When Zappos and, you know, Zappos are their whole uh, ethos of that company is on their employees, mm. not the customer. Well, I um, deliver... The customer experience. Well, absolutely. Yeah. You know, and a great a great little story around that is they have the the I think it was called the Flower Fund um, at, at Zappos, and and what the Flower Fund was was you know the their their staff were in, um, uh, talking to customers all day long, right? right? People calling in saying I got the wrong shoe size or whatever it may be. It arrived late, what have you. Uh, but through those conversations, you would find that they would find that customers would um, expose a lot about what was going on in their daily lives. So, you know, there was one particular story where uh, a guy had called up and he, a woman, sorry, had called up and she had ordered, uh, you know, a pair of shoes and, and got the wrong size um, and started talking to the, the, one of the call center uh, representatives. And this woman started to um, share the fact that, you know, she had lost her husband the day before or had the funeral the day before. And, um, and uh, what the, the, the call center rep did at, at uh, Zappos was, uh, as soon as they got off the phone, you know, sent a huge bouquet of flowers saying, hey, thinking of you from Zappos. And not just a whole bunch of flowers, but four sets of those same shoes in all different colors. Yeah. Right. And they call that, I think it was the flower fund. And, you know, that was a that was a really, um, really cool way to not only uh, inspire the internal uh, you know, team and motivate the internal team, um, but also a really cool way to deliver an awesome customer experience. So. You know, all of these companies that are sort of saying, oh, we got to become customer centric and customer first, unless they have a strategy around how they're going to, you know, become employee for first, mm-hmm. um, they're going to struggle, right? Because at the end of the day, you're going to, organizations today compete based on the people they have internally that are designing the strategies around these new customer experiences. And yet you see so often the whole employee focus is almost an afterthought in so many organizations. Including ours, you know, uh, two years ago in our agency, um, we did an, uh, our annual offsite, mm-hmm. and our head of customer experience stood up and said, "Can I see a show of hands of how many staff members on your first day in the agency uh, was asking yourselves in your head these ten questions?" And a hundred percent of the staff members put their hand up, which was, you know, where's the best place to go and have lunch. Um, when do I get paid? Who do I speak to about this? And these were all of the things that we had just neglected in terms of employee onboarding. Yeah. Um, and it was the biggest eye opener for us around, you know, That's for great. companies that were, especially us, you know, agencies that are trying to develop, help organizations deliver new customer experiences. But also because you're competing in a market where you want to get the best people. Yeah, and having that, building that reputation, smart agencies are realizing to get the best people. It's not about payment of, of fee of uh, salaries it's actually being a place that people want to work a hundred percent and yeah. you do have to practice what you preach right mm-hmm. so if, if if you're asking a strat- a CX strategist to come in and help advise companies on how to become customer first 
mm. and they've had a terrible you know onboarding yeah. experience yeah. what do you expect <laughs> right going back um apart from being customer centric a lot of organizations talk about being technology centric and digital centric when they actually mean customer centric but they're talking about the uh, almost like the technology and digital being their access to it, aren't they? Yes. Um, you know, what? 81% of digital transformation projects fail. Why do they fail? Because they're technology first, mm. not customer first. And I think, you know, everyone gets caught up in, oh, is this digital first or customer first? And just uh, the taxonomy. Mm. When in fact, at the end of the day, um, you know, the reason why all of these, you know, uh, digital transformation projects fail is because there's no real clear strategy on what they want that new customer experience to be. Um, so, you know, we our, our, our first piece of advice around how to help ensure that you don't fail is start with that, uh, start with the strategy, mm -hmm. which is what's our customer experience vision, what are our corporate and marketing objectives, and how do they align to that vision, and why now? What if mm -hmm. we do nothing? What's the impact? Um, so start with the strategy layer, then move down into what do we want the customer experience to be at each stage of the customer lifecycle. Yeah. So at the on, uh, acquisition stage, at the onboarding, at the engagement, at the retention, at the win back, what do we want the customer experience to be, yeah. uh, both online and off? Uh, the third is operationally, what team and skills and capability do we need to enable those customer experiences, both mm -hmm. internal and also external with agencies and partners? And then the last component is what technology do we need to enable that? Wow. So this is the reason why all these implementations around digital transformations fail, is because they start with the last, yeah. which is technology, when in fact they need to start with strategy. We, we get a lot of projects that start with companies that started with the technology and then find us up and go, it's not working. Yes. yes. <laughs> Can you come? And invariably, it's like wind it back. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, but uh, do you think also people hold on to things like technology transformation, digital transformation, because they actually don't know what they don't know? Mm. You know, it's like it's anything to do with digital technology um, is a for uh, still a lot of people quite scary. Mm. Well, I think also a lot of people just don't know, you know, um, you know, they're, they're in roles today mm. where they probably should know what it means but for whatever reason, don't actually know what this whole world of digital transformation means. What does it mean and what doesn't it mean? Um, and Because that's a difficult place to be because the expectation is you should know, but you don't. So a lot of them end up bluffing, you know, what is it, fake it till you make it. Yes. Uh, is the saying. But, you know, what can, you know, you're a senior marketer, you're in a company that's going through a technology digital transformation and everyone's looking to you and you've got no idea. Yeah. Uh, look, this is why we started, you know, investing so much time in helping organizations in, in, in training on the, the strategy development mm. uh, and the why. Right, not the what or the how, because that's what technology vendors will do. Right? Tell you. How do you send this and how do you send out this campaign? That's not the problem. The problem is the why. Mm. Right? Why are we doing this in the first place? So, you know, it, it, what we find is that, you know. Because uh, you've got a company that does this, don't you? Um, we do. Uh, we do. We, ca uh, Data Scouts. Data we, Scouts. Yeah, right. and we started this three years ago because we what we found was all of the technology led impl implementations around yeah. transformation and automation were failing. Uh, and they weren't failing because of the technology. The technology was fine. Mm. It was because, you know, the, the, the organizations didn't have the strategy. So what we realized was, well, we actually need to teach them how to develop a strategy, 
right? So that they, they're not imposters sitting in the meeting. They mm. actually have the tools and the framework that they can actually take internally and build it themselves, where they're not reliant on consultants or partners. And I think that's the, the one of the real challenges that this organization is facing. Over the years, the marketers have traditionally relied on other people, partners and agencies to do all the heavy lifting. Yeah. And what they're realizing now is like, well, you know, the, the world's changing. And unless they actually can understand, you know, what this is and how it's going to impact them and, and their teams, they're actually going to be, uh, you know, at a, at a real risk of being able to, you know, sustain their, their role. I don't think the industry as a whole have any comprehension of the impact of automation and no. um, and transformation, uh, particularly around AI and machine learning, uh, and what that is going to mean for you know people that are in these roles that don't have these skills today. Yeah. Um, and so well, it's going to eliminate a whole lot of doers. Yeah, isn't it? And what's left is people that can still uh, uh, develop and articulate strategy that can then be applied into algorithms and things for these uh, for these AI. Um, platforms. Yeah, and what what we're actually seeing is, you know, um, the, the 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 definition of the skill set that's required has completely changed, yeah. even in the last eight, eighteen months. So, a really good example uh, of um, of what we do around when we're recruiting for for uh, new talent, uh, we have we use uh, what's called the Growth Academy or the uh, Growth Academy's periodic table of, of growth skills, okay. and we give the candidate a, a, a red. Um, a red circle, a series of red circles and a series of green circles. And we say, go and put on the periodic table a green where you think you have the skills and a red where you think you don't okay. have the skills. And what that immediately uh, will show you is, A, are they going to be right for the organization? And B, uh, if, if they are going to be right, what things that they need to upskill on um, straight away. Um, or how cocky they are because they're just green <laughs> on everything. Yeah, well, that's true. That's true. And Which means they're not right for the organization. That's right. That's right. So, look, we're, the, we're, what we're seeing is this, this, this demand for, um, you know, people that, are, that have skills um, in having have built things, mm -hmm. right? And, and, and not the brands they've worked for or the people they've worked for or the, uh, the organization division and the success of that division. Because at the end of the day, no one cares. Mm -hmm. All they care about is that the value that you can bring to the organization and to the experience that you can deliver to their customers. And uh, which is why you're starting to see so many of these big corporates start internal, um, you know, accelerators and, and uh, innovation labs is because, you know, these startups are, com you know, are really uh, creating a uh, disruption for a lot of these traditional businesses. And rather than them lose staff mm -hmm. and they'll lose a lot of their smart talent to startups they you know they're trying to bring it in-house and you know uh, you know really transition their own businesses um, but we really think that the the, the, the skill set of today now and, and going to in the future is really all around um, being able to show an organization what you've done yeah. in terms of what you've built yeah. not how many people you managed not how successful your acquisition campaign was because almost guaranteed is that you weren't involved in it at, at, at a, at a hands-on level, right? You didn't build a landing page or come up with the A-B variable tests or, um, you know, work out what uh, log trigger logic was going to be used. Um, you may have been managing it, but you certainly weren't hands-on. And that's the biggest risk. So, you know, when you asked earlier around how do you sort of, you know, get across a lot of this 
new technology. Our advice to everyone um, that's trying to upscale is to get your hands dirty. Yeah, like get in there get and in try there it. And try yeah. it, right? Because that's the And best even in your own personal life. I mean, this is not just about big enterprise. You know, on, on a personal level, there are so many opportunities. I think the definition of aging is giving up the, op- the options available to you and just sticking with what you always know. You know, in many ways, that uh, curiosity and wanting to get in and work out why things do, how they work and how you can use them is uh, the way people do stay uh, younger longer. And it encourages, you know, education is about teaching people how to think. Yeah. Right. Uh, Albert Einstein, you know, famous Mm. quote, right. Not how to remember facts. Yeah. And, you know, I'm a big believer in that. Like, Mm. you know, when when uh, Facebook bought Oculus, um, Mm. I was so interested to understand about how virtual reality, uh, you know, was going to impact us as marketers and where that would, you know, potentially fit into the customer journey. So one of the things that I did was built a uh, a virtual reality app that we published on the Oculus Mm. store. And not because I was trying to get rich. It was because I just wanted to understand how it works. I want to understand how it works. See, I've always, uh, AR is, uh, I think, going to be the biggest opportunity. You know, augmenting reality for customers has got, because for me, VR was always, you know, it exists in gaming and entertainment and things like that. And I'm sure, you know, there are some applications. But taking reality and augmenting that, is is uh, the biggest opportunity, but anyway, time will tell. Won't yeah, it? absolutely. In fact, I was watching this morning a um, the, the 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 best or biggest funded private startup that in history is a company called Magic Leap, which is not based in Silicon Valley, not based in New York. It's actually in Fort Lauderdale in Florida, right. and they've raised um, you know more recently. I think it was an additional seven hundred million from Alibaba, uh, a huge chunk from Google. And they're uh, focusing on the, the what's called mixed reality, which is okay. a, between virtual reality and augmented mixed reality. reality. Yeah. So it's a combination of what sort of sits in the middle. Um, and they've got a vision for the future around, you know, uh, as a as a it, it, you know, an individual being able to use uh, uh, data and insights that are coming from all this the new sensors that are going to be developed and created around everything that we touch, do, and experience every day. Yeah. And how we interact with that, um, and so I think you know we haven't actually seen anything yet. You know, I think the the early stages of like Oculus and that we're we're gonna look back and go, oh geez, remember that? It was sort of like Atari, um, and you know, uh, it could it then. could be uh, my the fact that I get motion sick every time I put those uh, VR glasses on, but uh, that that's just a personal thing. <laughs> look, uh, going back to data, um, you can't have a conversation about data without talking about privacy issues, and we've got this huge uh, change in privacy laws in uh, the EU, Mm -hmm. which come into effect in May 2018, this Mm -hmm. year. Um, What what is the reason you think governments are becoming so focused on protecting data privacy? Is Uh, it misuse (laughs) or is it... Uh, fear or is it what? Two companies, Facebook, Cambridge Analytics. <laughs> right. <laughs> True. <laughs> yeah. Look, yeah. I think the, the, the reality is, um, you know, there's so much data being created every day. We all know that. Uh, but what it's creating is an enormous amount of power for the companies that um, are not only harnessing that data, but are um, taking action from that data. Mm-hmm. So if you think about the likes of, really simple example is WhatsApp. Right. Yeah. So Facebook acquired WhatsApp. 
if you think about your most, uh, your tightest social relationship and family relationships, that happens in WhatsApp, Yeah. right? It doesn't happen with a like on Facebook. Um, so if you think about those conversations, those real-time conversations that you're having um, with your family and your friends, those micro conversations, what I like to call it, um, all of that data is being mined, right? Mm-hmm. And you start to think, well, wow, that, that actually, what you write in those messages is being mined. So that information used with other types of um, uh, second and third party data, data can start to paint a very, very crystal clear picture of who you are, of not only who you are, but what you're likely to do next. Yeah, 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 your, your, um, you know, your psychology. That's right. You and know. also, how, the worst part and the most fearful part people have, which was brought up by yeah, the whole thing with Cambridge Analytica, is to then allow someone to manipulate you by them understanding your psychology. Yeah, look, it's a, you know, why, why is, is Google so powerful, right? Because if you want to know what people are thinking, mm. don't just ask them, look at what they're searching for. Mm. Right? Yeah, behavior is the best predictor of uh, what people are going to do. Absolutely. And the, the same thing that happened in search with Google is exactly what's happening with WhatsApp and Facebook. But do you think that the industry has actually missed a big opportunity, which is that, and I'm talking about the marketing industry, or is it just a profession, um, to actually uh, sell to the public, sell to the average person that providing this data within some guidelines actually makes their life better. Because, you know, I remember uh, when, I, uh, when I got divorced and I changed my status on Facebook, suddenly I'm getting uh, emails for... Uh, Russian brides <laughs> and then when I turned 50 I got uh, lots of stuff about impotence now this is very basic data mining isn't mm-hmm, it mm-hmm. and if I actually was uh, uh, on the basis that if I provided them more information they'd know that uh, I was much more interested I married a Chinese woman mm-hmm. and I don't have any impotence problems why haven't we got to the point of actually helping people understand what the quid, quid pro quo is yeah, look, I think two things. One um, is because people, you know, read stories that um, make them fearful around how their data is going to be used. So mm-hmm. they, they're oftentimes less likely to uh, provide additional information because they don't understand what the value exchange is. So, for example, if I go to a, you know, a website and I go to fill out a form, well, what am I getting in return? That's mm-hmm. nine times out of ten not clear. Uh, around what that value exchange is, and more importantly, how the data is going to be used. But what I think, um, so second to that, what I think is is actually going to happen is, you know, with a lot of these uh, newer technologies, with the likes of blockchain, etc., is that the actual individual, the consumer, will control their own data, hmm. right? So, um, and it has to. The only way it can work if it's in a de- decentralized network. Yeah. If if you know the, the look what's happening. No one can own. That's right. Yeah. And you are you control it because it's not owned by someone else. You yeah. control it and it's authorized by a general ledger that sits on the blockchain. Um, and I think ultimately that's what's that that's where it's going to go, mm. um, where the individual will be able to share their, um, for example, a blockchain ID 
And in exchange for sharing that ID and different um, amounts of data within that ID, they will get a return of value. Mm. And that return of value could be anything from uh, additional cryptocurrency or could be Mm. you get a PDF that you're going to download, which has got rich information Mm. that no one else gets or whatever the use case, it's an exchange of value. Um, But ultimately, we think that the only way um, that that's actually going to work at scale is on a decentralized network. That's, uh, that's actually an exciting vision. I hope it's not too far away because I think that's where um, we start to get consumers or people engaged in what is the value of that transaction. You know, they can make those decisions. Well, absolutely. And it's like a really simple um, analogy here is like, why do you think Uber's so, you know, valuable? It's because, you know, they have built a net- decentralized network um, where the, the power is put back into the, the control of, one, the consumer, so they can pick, get a ride any, anytime, anywhere they want. Um, and for the driver, they can work anytime, anywhere they want. Um, and when you think about that when, as it applies to data, it's like, well, uh, I, should, I, I should be able to make the call on what data I get uh, or what data I um, give and, and what I get in return and what price I put on that, what yeah. value I put what on value that. Are, yeah. Because what what you're willing to transact. Exactly. Hey, uh, well, this has been a great conversation. Time's got away from us. Um, I really appreciate uh, you taking the time and and sort of explaining uh, some pretty basic concepts, but also some important ones. So thanks for your time. No problem. Hope to help. Last question. Um, You mentioned uh, blockchain and and, uh, cryptocurrencies. How much have you made so far? Mm -hmm.